another entry point is just to call Prince Art and just to let people also know that you just look at it just as you do any other medium. If you want to know more, boy, will we tell you more. Friends, and welcome to the 85th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Facebook and Instagram, and our archive with closed captioning is available through YouTube. We also have a Patreon page, where generous and lovely print fans sign up at tiers that start at just a dollar a month. And every Patreon supporter, no matter what the level, has access to a new feature here in the Pine Copper Lime community, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are brief, short, all-business, quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests. What kind of paper do you use and why? What's the most important thing to know when starting a shop? So, for instance, if you enjoyed last week's episode with Jessica Robles, well, in her shop top, she gives away all of her secrets for drawing like a goddess. Just kidding. Or am I? This is technical printmaking nerd content at its finest. Learn more about becoming a Patreon supporter through a link in the show notes. Are you a Spanish-speaking print friend? Well, I have some news for you. Our co-host, Ronaldo Gil-Zambrano, has been creating bonus Spanish-language episodes in which he speaks to some of the most incredible printmakers around the world. He has created so many that we actually have made another feed for them. So, check out the link in the show notes to that, and subscribe. But don't worry, we'll still be bringing you your much-beloved bi-monthly bilingual episodes right here. Finally, we have merch. You probably know that by now, but we also have a special collaboration, a t-shirt designed by Mike Penningkamp, and so far it has proved to be our most popular to date. Check it out. Printmaking is bay. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like their new line of professional relief inks, beginning with the flagship color Super Graphic Black, and developed in collaboration with a printer Bill Thick. Formulated with all the working properties artist demands, these light fast inks roll out consistently, transfer beautifully, and clean up easily with soap and water. So if you want to take your practice to the next level, head on over to Speedball's website to see where you can pick up a can of your new favorite color. My guest this week is Judy Hecker, director of the International Print Center New York, a nonprofit arts institution dedicated to the innovation and preservation of prints by emerging, established, national, and international artists. Founded in 2000, the Print Center is a vibrant hub and exhibition space located in New York City's Chelsea Gallery District. We'll talk about the history of the center, the incredible resources that it offers printmakers around the world, how they've adapted and continue to adapt to the COVID-19 pandemic, and the upcoming opportunities that I know you might be interested in. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to take a trip to the Big Apple with Judy Hacker. Hi, Judy. How's it going? Hi, really well. Thank you. It's good to be here. 
Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you and to learn more about IPCNY. It's just such a, a, a cultural force and a large figure in the contemporary print world. And I know so many of the different guests that I have have been adjacent to it or know of it or referenced it. So I feel like it's, it's high time Pine Copper Lime sat down and had an IPCNY episode. So I'm very pleased that, that you could be here for that. Terrific. I'm delighted to be here. And I'm, it's a nice introduction that you've just given. Oh, yeah. So before we dive in a little bit to sort of your background and what the International Print Center in New York is and how it started, could you give yourself a little introduction and answer the questions that I always call who you are, where you are, what you do? Great. Well, my name is Judy Hecker, and I am a uh, the director of International Print Center New York, IPC. And um, where I am right now is home. Uh, I'm working somewhat remotely uh, in the office some days, at home other days. And I am surrounded by some prints, which we could maybe touch on later. I uh, live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and am happy to have a, a super commute down to Chelsea, where the International Print Center is located on 26th Street between 10th and 11th, right in uh, the energetic center of the Chelsea Gallery District and right off the High Line, which opened up uh, several years ago. And we are on the fifth floor of a really interesting mixed-use building um, surrounded by big galleries, uh, Green Naftali, Alexander Gray, uh, Paula Cooper across the street, um, Ryan Lee. So we're in very good company. And we run a program that is centered on championing prints and print artists. And we do this in a couple of different ways. We have open call exhibitions uh, that are focused on emerging and underrecognized artists. And uh, they're a way for artists who perhaps haven't exhibited in New York or who haven't had much exposure in the gallery world yet to get on the walls in a gallery. Uh, and we, we have other other uh, development opportunities with that, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, the other thing we do are guest curated exhibitions, and those are we invite individuals in our network, outside of our network, uh, to propose shows, and uh, those are usually done with uh, one or two years uh, lead time, and we have public programming and educational activities. But above all, we're really a hub, a place for artists who work in print, uh, in and around print, to come, to meet one another, to see exhibitions, to come for public programming, and to learn about the medium. Beautiful. I love all of that. I'm so glad that's the work that you're doing. It's what printmaking absolutely needs. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up in the field of printmaking? Uh, I'm happy to. It, it, um, I sort of fell into it. Uh, there wasn't a straight linear uh, trajectory that I set out in, you know, college, high school, graduate school saying that I want to focus on prints. But as I, uh, in my middle age, look back uh, at the last uh, 30, 30 plus years since I've been working, I can see some dots and some trends. And it's interesting without, you know, getting Freudian, it, it um, 
I, my first exposure to prints were actually um, when I was a child and my parents collected prints. I grew up in uh, suburbia in Stamford, Connecticut, not, not so outside, uh, not too far outside of New York City. And uh, they were avid lookers, avid museum goers, and prints were a way to collect without spending a fortune. Mm-hmm. And uh, it must have soaked into my bones and flesh a bit. Uh, I think back, um, this is back to the 70s and 80s, when they used to drag me into the city and we would go to AAA in Midtown Manhattan, which was one of the great it was founded, I believe, in mid-century mm. and closed down um, in the, uh, I think, around 2000. But it was a wonderful place to just flip through drawers, flip through uh, piles of prints, and it was a way for middle class and upper middle class people to to buy art. So, and was that the uh, the Association of American Artists? Is that the AAA? That's right. The Association of American Artists. And when we went there, Sylvan Cole, that's it, the Association of American Artists. And there was a wonderful exhibition done on its history. And it really was um, a major force in putting prints as collectibles on on the map. Uh, And it was true in my family, too. So I remember so distinctly the environment of of going there. It was a little bit like a living room, but much more modern and sleek. But there was brown carpeting and dim lighting, and it was benches that were (laughs) covered in leather. And it was really a marvelous, uh, my first exposure to touching art and looking at works on paper and kind of understanding what they were. And so I grew up with, with, with a few of these things on the wall, and I have my parents to thank uh, for that. So, you know, that's, that's uh, sort of one, one point uh, in, in my history. But I was an art history major. After uh, going to college, I worked at a gallery um, and decided I wasn't interested in the commercial aspect, but I was more interested in what I was seeing curators do when they Mm. came in, which was organize exhibitions and work on acquisitions. And that led to a job at the Whitney Museum of American Art um, when it was still in its uh, original location. Well, not original, but in its uh, (laughs) location on 74th and Madison. And I worked for um, a few curators, one of whom was Lisa Phillips, who's now the director of the new museum. And I worked with her on the 93 biennial, uh, among other big projects. So I was exposed to um, a really critical moment in the history of art when identity politics and um, social and political issues were really coming, um, becoming part of the discussion um, of art in a very front and center way. I also worked for David Keel, and that was mm-hmm. a really informative experience. So David um, had worked at the Metropolitan Museum of Art at the Wolfsonian and spent um, decades of his career building the uh, amazing collection at the Whitney Museum. And I was his curatorial assistant and he taught me how to catalog prints. Mm. He taught me how to handle prints and we really looked at the collection from A to Z and started developing a checklist. And that, that was a formative experience and David and I are still 
close today. And uh, after several years there, I, I went to graduate school and uh, received my master's um, in Chicago. And I didn't focus on printmaking. It was just sort of a thing, uh, but nothing that I was pursuing in a academic or professional context. That I worked on um, exhibition practice and institutional critique, and I wrote my thesis on Fred Wilson, who makes prints, but uh-huh. I wasn't looking at his printmaking um, at that point. But I, I, I ended up, after finishing my uh, master's, applying to several museums, uh, one of which was the Museum of Modern Art. And this was in 1997. So I didn't think I would get the job, but I ended up getting <laughs> the job and working for um, an incredible group of curators who were, again, very formative to uh, my career trajectory. Deborah Y, Wendy Whiteman, Star Figura, a uh, terrific group that ended up launching this lifelong love that was ignited by David Keel and I guess mm-hmm. my family as well. And uh, I was there 18 years actually at MoMA, also working. Um, I had the the privilege to work also under Christophe Chariques, who is who is still the chief curator of drawings and prints there now. Mm-hmm. And then I transitioned to something very different at IPCNY. It's so wonderful to hear your story because it, it reminds me just a, a little bit of mine in the sense that most people in the print world are print makers. Uh, it, it seems like at least the ones that many that I interact with and Oftentimes when you're in the print world, they just assume that you're a printmaker. People often assume that I make prints. And this other road that you can be involved in prints as a curator, as a collector, as an advocate, I think is always good to shine a little bit of light on that because I think it takes all people in the different parts of the ecosystem of printmaking to make it thrive. The the makers as well as the collectors as well as the advocates. Yeah. I think that's right. And, you know, there's something quite unique about the medium of prints in that it does require often chemicals and presses mm-hmm. and specialized knowledge and, and printers to collaborate with. And so there is the making aspect is a very big part of the field. But yes, like like all aspects of the art world, it um, there are many, many different entry points. And increasingly, I think, you know, there there are more and less at different points in time, young uh, scholars entering prints, but there are many organizations out there now, like the Association of Print Scholars, APS, Print Council of America, and and many opportunities that museums offer um, to curators, to educators. So there are many pathways into the field. Um, I do also recommend, though, that anyone who wants to collect, who wants to curate, who wants to teach, make prints as well. Um, even if it's, it's, it's not easy to do. Uh, I did it actually in undergraduate in college, part of being part of the uh, curriculum in art history was that you had to go through a rotation of all the different mediums, painting, drawing, printmaking, etc. And actually I was at the same time also doing some studio work myself. I was, I'm, I'm sort of a lot of curators are failed artists. Um, <laughs> And I wasn't the greatest printmaker, but I did make etchings. And I have, um, there's nothing like making or watching uh, prints being made. And it it really just informs so much of your understanding and appreciation for how those lines sit on the paper. 
Yeah, absolutely. When I was working at Davidson in Seattle, you know, as uh, someone working in a gallery where people can just kind of walk in off the street, the way ours was set up, you're often this first point of contact for someone when it comes to printmaking. At least I found that I was quite often. You know, people come mm-hmm. in and they, they're they not sure what they're even seeing. Because for them, art is either an oil painting or a bronze sculpture. And so when they come in and they see what's on the walls, they're not entirely sure. And so you need to help them understand and help explain what, what's actually happening on the, on the gallery walls. But if ever anyone came in with the slightest background in printmaking, even if it was, oh, I made lino cuts in my high school, the level of appreciation, you were just starting out at 100% more than you would get if someone just had no idea the actual process. Because it's that physical experience and really understanding how difficult it is and how technical it is will really start people off with just a much greater appreciation. That's right. That's right. And that's, it's something that the, the, the print center that IPCNY addresses is what, what are these? And we do get, you know, all the questions that everyone (laughs) asks, you know, is it original? Where is the original? Does number is number one more valuable than number 30 and all of the myths that surround, um, is it a poster, et cetera? Um, is it fine art and all the rest? And that's something that, you know, we, we continuously struggle with. And I think we, we have answers for all of this. But I think also um, another entry point is just to call prints art and just to let people also know that you just look at it just as you do any other medium. If you want to know more, boy, will we tell you more. And then we can... <laughs> We can dive in and get technical. We can show you. We can discuss. Um, we can talk about inscriptions. We can do all of that. Um, but um, I think it, you know, it's important for the field to to be recognized as a kind of specialist medium, but also art, just like all the other mediums that are out there, so that it isn't this kind of rarefied thing that uh, people misunderstand and feel they can't really access. Yeah, I always. I don't know. I always, I don't know if bristles the right word, but I always find I have a bit of a reaction when I see someone described as an artist and printmaker, as if they were two separate fields. That's right. That's right. That's right. Artists are artists. Artists work in print. There are some artists that work solely in print. There are artists that work occasionally in print. And, and yes, of course it's, they're all, they're all artists. Yeah. No question. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did you come to IPCNY from MoMA? Well, it was an interesting transition. And um, I had been at MoMA for a long time, and I wasn't looking for for a change. I, you know, working, leaving MoMA was a, was a high hurdle. It's an extraordinary place to work. The, you know, the treasure trove of the, the collection is, is just mm. unlike anything else. And it's, uh, you know, a, a kid in a candy store, uh, in print storage is really an understatement. I'll never forget the kind of access that I had to that remarkable collection of uh, somewhere like 75,000 prints. Um, mm-hmm. But an opportunity came up and I decided sort of mid-career to pivot and take, um, all the experience that I had with curating, with education, with donor development and, and fundraising to an extent, and and apply all of that to this 
amazing um, burgeoning institution uh, that Anne Coffin founded now 20 years ago. Um, and to Anne, uh, and you have to interview Anne because <laughs> she'll tell to. you the, the story of the origins um, of IPCNY and, and her rationale behind it. And it really was to fill a gap that she saw and recognized and others felt uh existed within within the field that there wasn't a center like there is the drawing center the sculpture center the international center for photography there was no print center there were there are many print based organizations publishers other nonprofits but not an exhibition space and nonprofits solely devoted to supporting prints so i decided to to make the switch and her family, I think, had been begging her to retire and mm-hmm. <laughs> go on and spend time with, uh, you know, doing many things that she had put off and um, throw herself more deeply into uh, many other nonprofits that she's involved with. And uh, I had known Anne and many people on the board. Uh, in fact, uh, even those uh, on the search committee through uh, MoMA, the print world is small and it's big. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, interviewed and it and it seemed like an amazing opportunity to take this well-established institution that was financially sound, that had a terrific board, um, that had longevity to its programming, and see how we could take it to its next next chapter, what was needed, what could be done newly, what could be done differently, what could be enhanced. And so it's it's five years in, and it's been a fantastic ride. Yes. So can you, before we kind of dive more into what IPCNY does, maybe can you talk specifically to what it offers? What are the facilities? I know you have an exhibition space and also mm-hmm. there's space for artists to work, but what's actually sort of physically there that runs and supports the functioning of the center? Sure. So we are um, a gallery. We're not an enormous gallery. We're a nicely sized gallery about um, 1800 square feet uh, at, at uh, 508 West 26th Street. We put on generally one exhibition at a time in the main gallery space. We also have a smaller gallery space that is sometimes an extension of the exhibition. Sometimes it it houses, uh, and I'll talk about our New Prints program, a focus show called New Prints in Focus. And at other times we convert it into a studio for our artists in residence. And so uh, one of the things that I did in um, 2017 to deepen what New Prints offered emerging artists is to establish an artist in residence program. And so we, for each of the two new prints exhibitions that we currently have, we have, uh, usually it started with one, now it's uh, two artists in residence. We are not a printmaking facility, mm. but it's an open studio space with fantastic windows where artists can work out ideas, they can sketch. We do have a itty bitty press, but we're not set up to work with chemicals. So it really is a kind of open studio home base uh, where they can land when they come uh, to New York. And we then set them up with two other, uh, with one of two other workshops. And I'll get into that more. I want to finish more about, uh, address more of your question about what the facility is. And we have offices. We have open offices. There are five of us, uh, plus two part-time people and a cadre of, of phenomenal interns. And we're all right there in an open office 
semi-snug space. We are a non-collecting institution. Mm -hmm. So we're the Kunsthall model. So we don't have collection storage, but we do have storage space in the back where we keep um, works that are coming up, you know, either, have either been recently deinstalled or are going to be installed. And we do have some inventory that we've collected over the years and benefit prints that we've published um, over the years that are on display and available to show. Uh, so that's the facility. But I, but I will say, in parallel, and particularly with the pandemic, our virtual space has mm. become really, really important. So we always had a website. But what we do now online has been completely transformed uh, over the past literally year. I think mm-hmm. this Friday uh, marks the one year since we actually closed our doors temporarily. We reopened at the end of September and are running a kind of hybrid space. But I consider our online exhibitions, our website, the public programming that we now do through Zoom to be our second space. So that is the the facility, the bird's eye view. Absolutely. I was thinking about that when you said you'd been at IPCNY for five years. And I was thinking, wow. So you were there four years when this really unprecedented in the history of the center event happened, which was, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you talk us through a little bit what kind of conversations you had around that and how you chose to to pivot and really start providing this really massive wealth of digital resources that you can find now on your website? But what was that kind of discussion for you, either with yourself or with your staff like? And then how did you make that decision to to take that on? Right. Well, we, you know, I felt we we had no choice. We Mm -hmm. wanted to deliver programming. We didn't want to shortchange our artists, our audience. And I have an amazing staff. Uh, The five of us together met and brainstormed. We had just hired. (laughs) She started three days, I think, before the pandemic hit. Emma, our marketing and communications specialist, and we all just did it together. Um, We, we, that particular Friday, March, whatever, we, we closed up shop and then we began delivering, I think as early as the next week online, online uh, resources and programming. We started off pretty simply with, with a fantastic crossword. It was a weekly or every other week crossword that challenged print minds. And that was really (laughs) fun. We started to more quickly get out uh, video content that we had in the hopper that we were going to deliver. And then we made very, very quickly a decision to pivot to a fully digital exhibition. And so most of our exhibitions have a corollary on the website, but this one was actually, it was meant to be in person, but it was then uh, conceived as um, a digital online exhibition. So it wasn't easy. I had to ask my staff who I knew could do it to, instead of Jen Bradovich, our um, exhibition and curatorial manager, instead of um, dealing with putting works on the walls and collaborating with the curator, I had to ask her to design a website from scratch. And she was so resourceful along with the entire staff that we created a, a, you know, a separate online 
exhibition platform um, for digital presentation on our website. And it was really um, exciting. We now have three fully digital exhibitions up there now. And now since we've reopened, we're in a more of a hybrid model where we're presenting exhibitions in person and we have uh, our usual presentation on the website. But it was exciting and it was, um, and it was scary. And, but we threw ourselves into it. And a lot of people commented that, you know, we were putting stuff out there that some of the big museums weren't yet putting out. And then we, then we had our first zoom panel discussion. So that was a whole nother level, um, of presentation that we hadn't, uh, we hadn't done. We had recorded panels and, and artist talks and lectures and then edited them and released them as videos, but we never did sort of live zoom TV production. So that was a bit of an adjustment, but everyone was game and we ended up, um, producing things with people in different time zones and different locations and in ways that we never could have in person. It was new. Uh, it was a new world and it was a exciting world with a, with a lot of possibility. I remember being really just surprised and impressed of how quickly IPCNY started offering digital programming when everything was shutting down. It, it was almost, um, I, I just remember that, like specifically noting that, that I was like, what were they, how long have they been planning this? Like, it just seemed like everything shut. And then before, well, everyone else was just kind of looking around, staring at their toes, taking stock. All of a sudden, all of this digital programming started coming out. And I think it was a great way to keep up momentum for the international print community to see like, okay, just because we can't get into our workshops, just because we can't have our exhibitions, this doesn't mean the conversation has to stop. That's right. And I think that was also a moment when people were in deep quarantine and we had, I'll never forget, I think we, we did analytics for our, our first digital exhibition was called Reprint, Five Projects. And it focused, again, this was meant to be in the gallery, but we pivoted and presented it online and it focused on five projects by contemporary artists, Cecily Brown, Glenn Brown, Mark Bradford, Enrique Chagoya, and Lynette Yadon Boake. And what we noticed was um, we had a tremendous amount of traffic uh, onto the website and onto our public programming. And we noticed even, I, I think it was one of the panel discussions, that there was a high percentage of participants from Spain. Mm. And that was at a moment when people were in deep, deep lockdown in Spain. So it was just so interesting to see how people, they needed this, they yeah. craved this. And we were so happy to have the participants that we did. And I'm so grateful to the staff and to the artists that allowed us to to pivot and put their works on the web. And of course, we added audio content. We had commentary by Jennifer Farrell from the Met. We all recorded things. We went into our into our closets yep. where I understand, I mean, you have a proper podcast station. We we didn't. So we took our iPhones into our clothing closets where sounds would be muffled and we we recorded and we did it. We just did it. And the final product is very professional, but it was very DIY. Yeah, I think that that's great that you say the closet because that's just just an old podcaster trick, or I would I think radio art, you know, radio artist trick or something like that is is the closet. Yeah. So take take notes, anyone out there who needs to make something sound like you're in a multi million dollar studio booth. It's it's the same as your 
as your old winter coats will have the That's same right. effect. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So if we can circle back for a moment to talk about new prints, because it's come up a couple of times, and I know it's one of the programming that you're really known for and has been going on for quite some time within the history of the facility, if I'm not wrong. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, in fact, it was the inaugural program after the big opening exhibition that IPCNY had actually in Midtown Manhattan at the AXA Gallery, which is which is no longer a public space. And that was a show called Hard Press, Hard Pressed 600 Years of Printmaking. And it was an amazingly curated exhibition with a proper catalog. And then that was that launched IPCNY. And after that, the institution got its first space in Chelsea, uh, a smaller space than the one we have now. And the new Prince program began. And that was really an outgrowth of what Ann Coffin and others were hearing that there wasn't a venue for artists uh, really emerging, not just emerging, but also established mid-career artists who were releasing new prints, but didn't necessarily have a place to show them. Um, now it's, you know, it's different because there's, there's online viewing rooms, there are many, many art fairs and print fairs now. Um, so there are many different ways to see works, but um, back then it was really a, a go-to exhibition and um, it's an open call. Publishers and uh, printers and artists can submit their their own work or submit work on someone's behalf. And then there is, it's a very kind of simple formula, but uh, in a, a thoughtful process. In the beginning, I think there were maybe, there were under a hundred submissions and now we get um, sometimes over 1000 submissions, but it truly is an open call uh, without any uh, required fees. There, the open calls exist elsewhere, but oftentimes artists have to pay a fee and they have to handle all the shipping. And in fact, we take away the fee, we assist in return shipping, and, and every participant, in fact, gets an honorarium. Um, so we, we try to take away as many um, socioeconomic barriers as possible. So whomever wants to submit um, can submit. And uh, it, it used to take place, I think it was four times a year, maybe even more. And um, it's now more balanced with our guest curated exhibitions. So we have two new prints exhibitions a year and two curated exhibitions a year. But it's an amazing opportunity to meet artists. I, I mean, going to the openings, it's, um, it's an extraordinary networking opportunity for so many of these artists who come in from all over um, the country, all over the world, from Knoxville, Tennessee, from Oregon, from Texas. And it's an opportunity to have conversations and exchange information and critique each other's works. And so it really is a kind of networking platform. And that's something I'm interested in exploring more um, in the future. And then, and then we do, um, not everyone gets in, obviously, that's the hard part. Uh, it's uh, now on average, it's between 35 and 50 artists. There used to be even more artists allowed in. So it's, it's tough. There are many people who apply again and again and again until they get in. But every juror or jury is different. So it's a fresh, it's a fresh opportunity for your work to be seen. And when can printmakers listening to this be on the lookout for when 
that call opens? Well, we do it twice a year and you should sign up. Everyone out there should sign up for our newsletter and you'll get all of those e-blasts into your inbox. And also uh, we have a lot of big social media presence, particularly on Instagram. We have an open call right now, so I'm not sure when this is going to air, but the open call is until midnight on March 29th. Uh, And so you can submit up to three works um, for consideration. The works need to have been created in the past year. So within the past 12 months, that's the one parameter and it has to involve print in some way. So, but that it can be a more conventional etching or woodcut, but it could also be installation based. It could be an animation that draws upon um, print. It can be a three-dimensional object, a collage that's primarily print. It can be ephemeral. It can be really any a multiple in addition of, of any sort and, and unique work as well, monotypes and monoprints. So it's quite a broad expression of the medium. So artists should apply. Um, and if you miss this open call, there will be another one in about another uh, six months. Yeah, I was just thinking that twice a year, that's really wonderful, because I know a lot of these larger print exhibitions that are open calls, just kind of thinking about the ones I know elsewhere in the world, sometimes they'll be once a year, even just once every two years. So twice a year is really quite a regular opportunity for printmakers to get their work out there. That's a wonderful resource for them. It is. It is. No, we're, 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 we're glad to provide that. And additionally, we now have these additional professional development, artistic development opportunities. So whomever is selected by the juror for the exhibition um, can then apply for additional opportunities, which includes the artist residency, an opportunity for a studio visit uh, with a professional. And we're now doing those through Zoom um, and also funded coursework uh, in your region or or remotely during the pandemic. So, and I just today spoke with our juror for the, for the, for the current uh, open call. And that's uh, Christian Baumgartner, who's in Leipzig, Germany, and is just a fantastic artist whose work centers on, um, in terms of medium and format, woodcut primarily. She also works um, in other other mediums, but video and photography are very much behind um, her expression in woodcut. And it was terrific to be able to team up with her. I'm not sure that we would be able to, We I'm not sure we would have asked her because she's in a different time zone and very far away pre-pandemic, but the pandemic has opened up opportunities to work remotely with with more artists so it should be and I'm interested to see how she she shapes the show absolutely and I think that's one of if we can be so bold as to talk about positives from the pandemic one of the positives from the pandemic is I'm seeing programming more internationally focused in a lot of ways because people aren't thinking can this person travel here when you just take away that question um, you know, you, you're seeing symposium and uh, online exhibitions that really is broadening the international conversations in the print world, which has been great. I'm actually doing the keynote at a symposium at the University of Tennessee this weekend, which I would never be able to do. Uh, it, you know, I mean, it, it, I just there's no way that I'd be able to 
travel to Tennessee to, you know, to, to give an hour talk and come back to Bangkok. It, It wouldn't have been possible just with my work schedule and everything here. So, but because of that, I, was lucky enough to be asked and invited to to talk and expand my network and hopefully meet more people. And it, it does have this, um, it's taken off maybe a little bit of that, of that can be sort of myopic focus of like travel restrictions. Uh, and so now people are, are looking broader and broader. Yeah. And I hope that stays. I mean, that is one of, of course, we want to see each other in person. We mm-hmm. want to see art in person. But um, I don't see any reason to discontinue doing, um, it could be hybrid programming. There could be certain people who are local or who are able to fly in and then other people zoom in and have a presence on a a video screen in the room and then the others are live stream. So I think think this whole idea of hybrid programming and and space is going to stay. We're certainly going to be live streaming events from IPCNY once we can start to do public programming Mm -hmm. in person again. And at the same time, uh, I hope we find a way to continue to bring people in from different time zones. And, and we tried, it was interesting because we, we, one of our first events with, uh, in last spring, I believe it was in April was with people in different time zones. So the question is, when do we do it? And, and when we see this now, it's, you know, certain events we have at 6pm, other events mm-hmm. we have um, at 12pm so that people in Europe can um, watch it before it's too late. And, uh, and all of these things are, are recorded and, and released after. So even if you miss it live, you can watch it again. So I agree. I yeah. agree with you. Because it's not just with the participants, like the curators or the speakers, but I think you speak to something really significant, that it's breaking down accessibility barriers for the people who consume what we produce. So people are taking this effort to record and post what's happening in their spaces. And so therefore, some young printmaker in that small town in India with a smartphone and a little bit of uh, data can now see what's happening in print centers around the world in a way that they never were able to before. That's exactly right. Yeah. And it actually, we are looking at issues of accessibility, literally, um, for those who can't physically make it um, uh, due to uh, differences in ability, disability, and the elderly who are homebound are able to participate. And that's, that's really um, fantastic. We also started doing closed captioning mm-hmm. so that uh, those who are hearing impaired are sure to be able to read along. And uh, so it has opened up a lot. And for us, it also opened up a ton of partnerships. It was really, really great. I think at a certain point, well, in the beginning, I think people were like, ah, how do we do this? Let's mm-hmm. partner. Yeah. And we partnered. And then I think later, <laughs> six months, nine months later, it was like, ah, there's too much Zoom traffic. Let's partner so that we don't you know, have... 50 events we all want to go to between the hours of 6 and, and 8 p.m. So we partnered um, pretty early on. Um, we did an event with uh, Enrique Chagoya with Manhattan Graphic Center, and that was fantastic. We partnered with the Leslie Lohman Museum. Um, we did a project, uh, Chitra Ganesh. Uh, the artist was, New York-based artist, was our juror for our summer new Prince show last year, and she was also preparing uh, an exhibition project for the windows of the Leslie Lohman Museum. So we we connected with them and we partnered with um, 
the IFPDA during the Print Fair and Print Council of America. And all of these led to um, new audiences for us, new audiences for them, uh, increased viewership, and just a lot of cross-institutional dialogue, which which we hadn't had in such a direct way. So I hope the partner partnering continues. Um, the print community in particular, they're so friendly. And so I think I think there's going to be more of that. Yeah, because I, I was thinking about it and that the word international is, of course, within the title of the International Print Center New York. So was that focus of this global print community intrinsic from the founding of the center then? I think it was. I think, yes. Uh, the answer is yes. Uh-huh. I think we are we are still becoming um, international to an extent. It's it's aspirational, but we have done exhibitions and we do get artists uh, from all over the world. Well, that's an overstatement, not all over the world, but from different regions of the world, Eastern Europe, Latin America, um, often applying to our new Prince programs. And we have done uh, curated exhibitions that focus on, on different regions, on Cuba, on Russia, on Iceland. So international printmaking and regions and pockets of printmaking um, outside of the United States are, are, are of interest. And it's not, I wouldn't say it's a regular beat. And I think that's something that we're looking at Mm. as an institution. We're now um, going through this process called strategic planning that institutions Mm -hmm. do where they take stock of where they've been, where they've been and where they're headed. And, and, we are looking, you know, closely at the programs and how truly international we we can become, um, and while staying relevant to to local audiences right. um, as well. Yeah, that balance between that you have the word international, but you also have, of course, New York. In, in yes, the title. I, you have both. It's it's a little bit of a mouthful, and there's there's been some discussion: should we shorten it to IPC, International Print Center, because mm. We are in New York, but we're not also in Dubai. So we are, it's sort of, you know, self-evident that we're in New York. So I, we're, we're, we're looking at all these different things. But yeah, I think the name International Print Center New York um, reflects the fact that we are grounded um, very much and in, in, in centered in, in New York and the print community and artist community there, but um, international in that um, the reach of the medium and the network um, is far greater. And if you go to our website, under our resources page, we have, um, I believe it's under resources, um, a map of the, the print world. And it's an amazing thing you can click on. And it really is just like a Google map. And you can see the whole globe spread out flat. And um it's searchable by workshops, it's searchable by galleries, university programs, print libraries and archives, associations, conferences and fairs, and it's an amazing wealth of information. And it's one of our most visited um, pages on our website. And so it's something I'm really proud of. So in fact, even if our exhibition program doesn't regularly have an international component to it, um, we do have, we build these resources and we're constantly refreshing these resources and inviting people. And I'd love to get some resources from Thailand on there. I have to look and see how many we have. Yeah, um, it would absolutely. be great to do that. Well, it's 
Thailand has an incredible print scene and it's really fascinating here because it's quite new. Thailand is one of the few places in the world that doesn't have a historical print tradition and so it really was in the latter half of the 20th century that artists took up printmaking but in general in Thailand the contemporary art scene has a really, really strong focus on technical ability, uh, more so mm -hmm. than I've seen in other places that I've worked. And I think that that translates so well to printmaking. So I've seen artists pulling work on plate litho here that looks like photo litho. You know, I've seen oh. just the woodcuts that look like oil paintings. And it's, it's really, yeah, it's sort of incredible that all of these people are, are working just within this one country and you see the most incredible mesitants. Uh, there's always, I don't know if mm -hmm. you, you know, the um, mesitant festival that happens every two years in Russia, but the, you know, a Thai artist is always in that top. Wow. And I didn't know that. Yeah. It's the kind of thing that's just, that's, you know, um, for, for a relatively small country, the, the prowess that they have in printmaking is, is incredibly impressive. So anyway, if you ever well, I'd love to explore that yeah. and, and, and get some more resources on our, our, on our map. So we'll have, we'll have a follow-up discussion on that so we can get those, uh, get that information out to people. It's really great here. There's tons of young people starting print workshops as well here. And yeah, it's just, it's a very, it's, it's sort of how I ended up here because I had a, a job offer at the gallery I'm at now, but I really ended up here because I just started coming here for the printmaking about six years ago. So it's, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll I'll send Fantastic. you some resources for sure. It's, it's I'd love to see a it. hidden gem, I think in the print It sounds world. vibrant. Yes, very much great. so, very much so. So we've talked a lot about the resources that IPCNY offers for artists and that print map sounds incredible. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm absolutely going to dive into it pretty much probably the second we're off this call. Um, but you also have really deep dialogues with print curation and print scholarship, which I, I think is so important as well as we talked a little bit at the top of the hour here. Can you speak to what IPCNY does in that arena? Absolutely. I think, um, yeah, because there, as you know, it's a, the print field is an, is an ecosystem and supporting artists, supporting print workshops is, is essential. There's no question, but those artists and those print shops also need to be discussed, need to be researched, need to be written about, need to be curated into exhibitions. And so I felt really, um, strongly and IPCNY always had a very, very strong, history of curated exhibitions, um, but I wanted to deepen that and create more of a platform. And we're still in the process of, of becoming, and we, we may in fact um, start putting out open calls, uh, truly open calls um, to curators, to uh, anyone who is, who is interested in putting on an exhibition. I feel it's really important to create opportunities um, for those who are interested in, in curating and writing and criticism to make projects. Um, it's not everybody works at MoMA and uh, not everybody who works at MoMA gets an opportunity to do an exhibition. Um, 
And there is an incredible wealth of talent and thinkers out there who are looking for space. And we're certainly not the only ones doing this. There are organizations dedicated to launching um, and nurturing curatorial careers, but none are wholly focused on the future of, of, of print curators um, in an institutional setting. And so I feel strongly um, about that. I think the staff does. I think the board does as well. And it's been um, been serving us well um, because, of course, when, when there's innovation from a curator, there's innovation in the works that they present. And so we have recently... Um, we worked with Assembly Room, which is a collective of, of women identifying curators who put together quite quickly in, in the aftermath, um, in the months following the spring riots and the George Floyd murder, mm-hmm. an exhibition called Living in America. And it was an exhibition in four acts. And it brought a lot of artists who work directly and tangentially in print into um, dialogue with an, one another and with issues that the world is urgently facing. And so it was about the transformative power of art and the transformative power of print in times of crisis. And uh, it was also about providing opportunity for curators that themselves no longer have a dedicated space. And it worked really really very well for them, along with um, the artists in the exhibition. And there were artists that have, from the exhibition that were acquired by by museums. And in fact, one of the curators went on to work for, for a museum, not because mm-hmm. of this exhibition, but it is, um, uh, I can't take that much credit, but it is a place for ideas to, um, to percolate and to work out uh, and incubate and to work out hypotheses that other institutions, bigger institutions may not take on as, as quickly or as, as easily. And so um, we've had uh, a lot of great um, curators and writers. Kelly Baum from the Met wrote for our exhibition on paper borders, which put the work of Emma Nishimura uh, and uh, to hear Carl Carmali together in dialogue um, about memory and xenophobia and migration. And that was really a very promising uh, coming together, promising dialogue between these two artists. We've worked with some well-known um, retired curators in the field who are just encyclopedias of knowledge. Roberta Waddell teamed up with Samantha Ripner on our Pulled in Brooklyn show, and they did a deep dive into that into that borough and the makers there. Um, so we've had really um, Susan Tallman, who was the editor of Art and Print, um, dedicated an issue to a a topic on on visibility. It's called edge of visibility and the lack of visibility in some printed works and what that means in terms of the content of those works. So we've worked with a range um, of curators, but we're we we're moving towards an even more open model. And you know what we're we're recognizing is that our Rolodexes uh, that we have relied on are not as inclusive as they need to be as um, the world faces this issue, this really important, important issue. And so we we hope um, in the future we're exploring doing a, a true open call and, of course, 
where the open call is marketed and advertised will either gender more or less inclusivity. So we're looking at all of this, but we feel we would like IPCNY to be a place where new voices, different perspectives on print and print culture can be brought into dialogue with with our public. Beautiful. I, I feel like that's an absolutely lovely note to end on, actually, as we're coming up on our, our hour recording mark here. Before we sign off entirely, could you please let people know where they can find all of these amazing resources that you were talking about from this, the, the dialogue with scholars, the new prints, the residency, uh, all of that. Instagram and website, where should people go? Both, all of the above. So yeah, our, our website is really the number one um, clearinghouse. And if you head to the website, um, it's a very user-friendly and you can view all of our past exhibitions. You can listen to all of our past um, public programs and artist talks. You can take now, I didn't mention 3D tours. It's a, it's a kind of 3D scan of our space where you can actually maneuver when using your mouse. Um, through the space and click in and zoom in on, on, on works and labels. So there are many ways to access. Um, all the resources are there too. We have um, a strong resource page I mentioned. The map of the print world, um, all of our past crosswords if you want to do it. And then we also have COVID-19 resources for artists that we add to when new ones become available and print resources for social justice. We partnered with the Print Center in Philadelphia um, last spring uh, and summer to to launch um, what's become a really vital um, look at organizations and events and um, that support um, social justice causes. So all of this uh, can be found at ipcny.org. And yes, um, you should follow us on Instagram. You should follow me, um, Judy Hecker, on Instagram. We're also on Twitter and Facebook to an extent. And uh, we're doing more programming um, on Instagram Live as well. So sign up. And if you get to Chelsea, uh, you can safely visit us. You just have to make an appointment in advance and um, see the works of art in person. Great. Oh, I'm so excited to share our talk and all of the incredible resources that IPCNY offers. And thank you so much for everything you do for the print community. Um, just can't wait to, to share it with all the listeners. Well, thank you for inviting me and thank you to producing and, and creating. Um, we're, we're here just to um, be a platform um, for all of you. So um, keep, keep making and keep uh, recording and we'll keep, uh, we'll keep doing our part. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Steve Prince. We'll talk about embodying the art you make, meeting experiences where they are, and culture care. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.